was working in town one afternoon Attending some business affairs I heard a commotion a couple of streets over And wondered what's happening there A young man was running from in that direction And stopped just to catch his breath I asked him to please tell me what was the hurry He smiled up at me and he said I was trying to catch a crippled man Did he run past this way? He was rushing home to tell everyone What Jesus did today And the mute man was telling myself And the deaf girl he's leaving to answer God's call It's hard to believe But if you don't trust me Ask the blind man who saw it all Ask the blind man who saw it all Now my friends, if the troubles and burdens you carry Are heavy and dragging you down You've tried everything you can possibly think of But there's no relief to be found That very same Jesus who altered the future Of the blind man, the deaf and the lame Is still reaching out in your hour of trouble One touch and you're never the same You'll be trying to catch the crippled man Did he run past this way? He was rushing home To tell everyone What Jesus did today And the youth man was telling myself And the deaf girl he's leaving To answer God's call It's hard to believe But if you don't trust me Ask the blind man, he saw it all. Ask the blind man, he saw it all. He saw it
Now, I know what day it is. It's time change day. And um, I'll tell you what. I might appeal to the Lord one of these days in some way. It seems to me like that in all fairness, time change day ought to come on Sunday once every seven years. And that next year it ought to be on Monday, and the next year it ought to be on Tuesday. Doesn't it seem like, why are we always picking on the churches? And it um, looks to me like, in all fairness, that the Lord's Day wouldn't always be the target of this thing. Because one of the, we, we have a little prayer meeting in my office with the staff. We gather over there and have a brief time of prayer before the service. And one of the men this morning said, you know what? Uh, boy, you can tell it's time change day. They were glazed over in my class today. Now, are you glazed over? How many of you missed one hour of sleep at least last night? Okay, well, what do I do to, you know, I can't serve coffee again in here. What do I do to get your attention when you've got the cobwebs up here from a lack of sleep? So at any rate, turn that button on inside, whatever it is, and say, now I'm going to listen for about the next 30, 35, 40 minutes here. And I'm going to leave here today and say it was good to have been in the house of the Lord. It was worth the time. It was a good investment. How many of you are going to do that today? Amen? All say amen like Baptist. Yeah, say it. Say it. That's right. So I want you to be awake, and I know you've stood up, but we're going to stand up one more time today, if you will. Will you join me? And we're going to go to the book of Acts, chapter 28, because I really want you to hear the message that the Lord has given me today. It's called The Proper Use of the Law. It's not a very good title. But it's the best I could come up with. I wanted something really, really grab you. And I never could come up with it. But the rest of it, the title is the weakest part of this message. From now on, it's going to get better and better and better as we go here, okay? So <laughs> I'll see if I can live up to my billing there. Okay, in the book of Acts, chapter number 28, it's a, it's a passage of Scripture that uh, we read it and kind of pass over it, I'm afraid. And yet, it's just full of good things. Now, before I read it, remember this about the book of Acts. It's been said that the book of Acts doesn't have any ending. It doesn't end. It doesn't come down and have a conclusion. The book of Acts is just like it's chopped off. It just stops. It hangs out there in midair. Why do you think that's so? I think I know the answer. The book of Acts didn't end because we're still in the book of Acts. The Lord's people are still trying to do His work and carry out His great commission and send the missionaries and do the work of the Lord in the world. And so it didn't have an ending. Well, that's not concluded. The book of Acts will end when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And until then, we're still doing the work of the Lord, the same thing that He commissioned us to do. Now, read with me the ending then of the book, beginning in verse 16. Follow with me in your Bible. And when we came to Rome, Luke, the physician, wrote, the centurion, military officer, delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was allowed to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. And it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together there in the city of Rome. And when they were come together, he said unto them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing 
against the people or customs of our fathers. Yet I was delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, would have let me go. They couldn't find any charges because there was no cause of death in me. But the Jews spake against me, and I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar, not that that I had anything to accuse my nation of. For this cause, therefore, am I called for, have I called for you to see me and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. And they said unto him, Well, we neither received any letters out of Judea or from Jerusalem concerning you, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of you. We haven't heard anything negative about you, Paul. So we desire to hear of you what you think. For as concerning this sect, speaking of Christianity, and they referred to it as a sect, concerning this sect, We know that everywhere it is spoken against. They didn't have a real positive image in that culture. Everywhere this religion, this sect that you represent is spoken against. But when they had appointed Paul a day, meaning a court date, there came many to him unto his lodging to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God persuading them concerning Jesus both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. When they agreed not among themselves, they departed after Paul had spoken the word. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet and our father, saying, Go into this people and hear seeing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. And he's quoting from the prophecy of Isaiah. For the heart of this people is waxed gross. Their ears are dull of hearing. Their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and should be converted that I should heal them. Be it known, therefore, unto you that the salvation of God is sent under the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. Lots of conversation. Note this, verse 30. And Paul dwelt two whole years waiting for that court appointment, his appeal to Caesar. He lived in his own hired house or rented house. He rented a house in Rome and lived for two years ministering, as this describes, and he received all that came in unto him. And he was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concerned the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Now, our text, though, today is just one verse. All of this is background and context. Verse 23, and when they had appointed him a day, a court appointment, there came many to him unto this house that he had rented for two years. And he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning until evening. And Lord, will you add your blessing to this passage of Scripture 
And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my King and my Redeemer. In his name I pray, amen. And you may be seated. So Paul is in Rome now. He's traveled all over the Mediterranean world, as you've been reading uh, throughout the book of Acts, if you've ever read it. He's waiting for a court date when he can go before Caesar, Caesar and make an appeal because he is an innocent man of the charges of sedition and rebellion against the empire. And for the next two years, he lives in this rented home. And during that two years, he has a wonderful ministry here. He's under house arrest. There is a soldier there with him, but he is according to verse number 23, expounding and testifying about the kingdom of God, persuading the people that come to him about Jesus out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, and he works hard from morning until evening every day doing the work of the ministry. Now, there's a lot in that verse, more than I can talk about in one time, so today I want to emphasize the part of it where it says he expounded the law. He expounded the law. And I'm going to talk briefly about the others, but not much. My focus today is the proper use of the law and that Paul expounded the law. Expounded simply means to explain. He explained the sense of the law to all the people that came to that hired house for two years, from morning until night, a powerful, powerful ministry, obviously, that he had. So I want to talk to you about what is the role of the law today in the Christian faith, because it has increasingly been occurring to me that average Christian knows virtually nothing about the law, even if they understand a great deal of the gospel. And secondly today, I think what I'm preaching this morning is why we're seeing a dearth of evangelism in America today. If people ever got hold of this, they would get saved in droves. But for a long time now, very frankly, and I want you to really listen. I believe you will agree when I tell you this, but this is extremely important. If you are the average evangelical Christian most of the references you've heard to the law throughout your life by preachers and Bible teachers have been negative. We spend a lot more time putting down the law than we do expounding the law. We have been told that the law is bad, that the law puts a curse on us. It does. But we have gotten this negative impression that the law was the Old Testament, and grace is the New Testament. And consequently, if I were to go throughout this audience, I really believe if I were to do a little poll and a questionnaire and ask you what you think of the law of God, I think, one, there would be some confusion as to what the law even is, and two, I think it would be a very negative impression that we would say, well, the law is bad, but grace is good. And you don't hear much preaching along this line now. But boy, the old preachers preach like this. 
If you go back and read the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, if you go back and read the sermons of Billy Sunday and all those preachers of the past, you'll find out they had a high regard for the law, and they didn't put it down. They understood the proper use of the law. What is the law? You open your Bible here, and uh, you have a division about two-thirds of the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament, two-thirds of it Old Testament. Now, the law is the major or a major portion of the Old Testament. The law, the Jews referred to it as the Torah, the Torah, meaning the first five books of the Bible. And we call it the Pentateuch, same thing, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We read those books and we find out they're divided into three parts. And I don't want to get too bogged down in details, but I want you to get this. So here's the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is divided into the law and the prophets, basically. And the law has three separate parts to it. You might want to put this on your little sermon notes area there in your program if you want to. It has the ceremonial part of the law, which told the priest how to do the sacrifices, how he was to dress, how they were to set up the tabernacle. The ceremonial part dealt with with the ceremonies, the religious life of the nation of Israel. The second part of the law is the civil law. And civil law is the part that was simply the law of the land in Israel, like we have a speed limit and like we have a law about bankruptcy in South Carolina. They had laws about speed limits and bankruptcy in ancient Israel, civil law. Now, today, the civil law no longer applies because you and I don't live in Israel, and if we did, they don't live under the Mosaic law. And today, the ceremonial law does no longer apply because Jesus fulfilled the law. Do you remember in Matthew 5 and 17, Jesus said, I came not to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And Jesus fulfilled it. And when he went to the cross and died, he became the ultimate and last sacrifice we would ever need for sins. And so there is no longer the need for the civil law. We're not Jews living in Israel. There is not the need for the ceremonial law because Jesus Christ is our Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world and concluded and completed all of that portion of God's Word. But there is a third part of the law, and we call it the moral law. Now, you probably refer to the moral law as the Ten Commandments. That's a major part of the moral law. There's a little bit more, but not a whole lot. Remember this about the law. If you turn to Exodus 20 in your Bible, and I don't want you to right now, but just note the reference. It says, and God said these words to Moses. God said these words to Moses. Do you know that other than the red letters in the New Testament that were spoken by Jesus the only other part of the Bible that was spoken to God by God himself directly to a human author is the part of the law, the moral law of God. God 
spoke those words himself. In fact, the Ten Commandments, it says he even wrote them on tables of stone with his finger. So we can't discredit something that came out of the mouth of God that was written by the finger of God and spoken by the mouth of God. Just begin to think about that for a moment. You'll say, that's ludicrous that we would downplay something like that. Now, the law is described, well, we'll just turn with me. Go to the book of Romans, chapter 7, and I'm going to go to Romans a number of times, so you might want to keep a finger there. We'll come back to it a couple of times. It's so important. I started to just read the verse to you, but I want you to look at it and see a couple of things with your own eyes. In Romans, chapter 7, in verse number 12, I I want you to notice the thought here, Romans 7 and 12, wherefore the law is holy, holy. We don't find Paul putting the law down and saying, oh, we're not under law, we're under grace. And comments like that that are not well thought out. The law is holy. And the commandment, or the Ten Commandments, if you will, are holy and they're just and they're good. Notice the description there. That's not a negative description. That's a very powerful, positive description. The law is holy. The law is just and fair. And the law is good. And while you're turning, just go on over to the right to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 8. But we know that the law is good if... This is a big if. A man uses it lawfully or he uses it correctly or he uses it appropriately. The law is good. Knowing this, verse 9, the law is not made for the righteous man or for saved people. If you're saved, the law wasn't written for you. But for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for the murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, homosexuality, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God who was committed to our trust. Do you see how Paul is building up the law? And it's good if it's used lawfully, if it's used in the proper way. Now, it's been badly misused, but the law is good and holy and just, the Scripture says. So what is the purpose of the law? And I'm going to give you four of them, and I hope you will write them down because I never want you to forget them. What was the purpose of the law? Number one, the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God. To reveal the character of God. The law, if we study the law, we see the character of the one who spoke the law, who gave us the law. How would I know anything about God other than that he is all-powerful and he has all knowledge? I can see that looking at the creation. I look at the creation around me. I know that somebody mighty powerful created the heaven and the earth. I know that somebody with all wisdom 
created the stars and that run in their orbits and the seasons and sets the sun in its place and all the many wonders of nature. But it doesn't tell me. I would never know that God is holy by looking at the world around me. I would never know that God is a just God and a righteous God by looking at creation. I would never know from looking at the sky and the stars and the world around me that God is a God of mercy or a God of grace. I would never know that God loved me. I'd never know that were it not for the book of God. I would not know God's character except that the law reveals it. And that's why Paul says it's good and it's holy. Recently, I read an article in USA Today. And here was the headline. More Americans are tailoring their religion to fit their own needs. Listen to that title. More and more Americans are tailoring their religion to fit their needs. And it basically talked about how that people are saying now, you know, I don't like that part of the Bible, but I like this part of it, so I'll select this part. And you know what? I don't like this part of Christianity, but I like this part of Buddhism. So I'll take a little Buddhism and cut and paste a little bit, and I'll have a little Christianity over here and a little Buddhism over here. And you know, I kind of like this new age self-help guy that I heard on TV. I'll take a little bit of that and put it in there. And, and, the, and the poll basically said, Americans now are creating a designer God. Is that, is that not something? We're creating a God of our own mind rather than a God from divine revelation. We are making the God that we worship, the God that we created in our mind rather than the God who is, the God of Scripture. Well, the law would undo that. The purpose of the law, it reveals to me the high and holy and mighty and righteous and just character of an almighty being who created us. Number two, the law, the purpose of the law is to display the true nature of sin. To display the true nature of sin. Will you turn with me again to the book of Romans there where we were, chapter number 7? Let me point out one other very important verse to you. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, Paul said. But look what he says as he continues. I had not known sin, but by the law. Were it not for the law, I wouldn't even know what sin was. I had not known lust, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. And he goes on and he talks about the law here. It's a very involved passage of Scripture, but what he's saying is, how would a man know that lust was wrong if it were not for the law? How would I know that stealing is wrong if it were not for the law? There has to be some moral standard that never changes of absolute truth and absolute morality, and that standard, Paul says, is the law. 
Now, when your little boy or little girl are about three or four years old, and they come up to you one day and say, why is that wrong, Mommy? It's wrong because God said it's wrong. It's wrong because the law of God has declared it to be wrong. And the law of God is an absolute law. It's not subject to our whims. God doesn't take a poll and see what you and I agree with and don't agree with. God's laws are absolute because, as I said, the law simply reveals the character of God. And so the law displays the true nature of sin. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, listen to this. Sin is the transgression of the law. So you say to me, what is sin, Pastor? It's breaking God's law, very simply. It's treading on territory that the Lord said, no trespassing. Don't go over there. Sin is the transgression of the law, the definition of sin straight from the Scripture. I was flying one day, and I don't remember exactly where it was, big city, I pictured in my mind, I was sitting by the window on the airplane, and there was, I heard, I heard them on the weather talking about smog, but I, I really didn't see that there was a whole lot of smog. It was a little bit, the air was a little bit sort of milky looking, but I, I didn't really think much about it, and, and then as the airplane came up off of the airport, and it began to climb, and it got up to about eight, ten, twelve thousand 12,000 feet in altitude. I looked back out of the window and over to the city where I'd been, and there were all the beautiful buildings and, and the, the, the skyline of the city. And it was like a brown cover was over the city. You could see the smog. My point, when you're down in the smog, you don't even see it. But when you got up there where the air was clear, you could see the smog from the airplane. It was just hanging right out there in the air. And my point to you is this, that we live in a sinful world and a sinful culture, and we don't even see it. We become immune to it. We're so used to evil around us that it doesn't even really impact us until we get up in the clear air of Mount Sinai and God's law. And then suddenly we, be, suddenly we begin to see sin as God sees it. Now, look up here and listen to me because I really want you to get this. Because of that, I believe that preaching the gospel and not preaching about the law and sin, that the gospel has very little effect on people until they see the gospel through the lens of the law. Preaching the gospel, witnessing, will not have an effect on people until they sense their need for the gospel. There is no urgency. The average sinner is living in the smog and never sees it. In fact, I'm afraid many Christians are living in the culture, living in the smog, and they don't see it. And only when they look at it, the world through the law of God, do they see the sinfulness of sin. If you're taking your cues for what is right and what is wrong from this culture, you're going to be so desensitized in our world today that nothing holy will ever really have any appeal to you at all. 
you're not seeing it clearly. Last week, I began the message along the same line, not the same message, but similar in, in thought. I began it with an illustration. I said, if I were to stand here on this platform and I were to invite you to come up afterward, and I said, over here we have a nurse, and she has a supply, a large supply of Ebola vaccine. And as soon as the service is over, just come over here, roll up your sleeve, and we're going to give you an Ebola shot today. I doubt I'd have a long line of people wanting an Ebola shot. Because as far as I know, there's not a case of Ebola in the United States. But do you know what? If we had an outbreak of Ebola, or if I were to go over to West Africa to Guinea or Sierra Leone, and I were to say at the end of a church service, come and get your free Ebola shot, I'd have a line of people to the horizon because there's an urgency and there's a need and they sense it and they're even afraid. They are desperate over there where that epidemic is going on. And ladies and gentlemen, if we preach the gospel and don't preach the law, If we run to the gospel when we witness to people and tell them, look, Christ died for your sins. He was buried in a grave and he arose again. Isn't that great news? They're going to look at you like you lost your mind. What's so great about that? What's the big deal? Some Jew got himself killed 2,000 years ago? (laughs) How does that affect me? That's the way the secularist thinks. You've got to connect the dots. You've got to say, you're dying from the virus of sin. You have the cancer all over you that you have broken the law of God. Let me show you here. And then when you tell them the gospel, it really becomes good news then. Now, you have created an urgency and a need. Now, in our pulpits across America, understand something. We preachers have been schooled and taught, don't be negative, don't be negative, don't be negative. And we've raised a generation of Christians who buy books that say, oh, don't even go and listen to a negative preacher. And you know what? We're afraid to tell people that sin is sin. And so we have no urgency. Nobody senses they're in real great danger until they look at their life and their eternity through the prism of the law. Why? What is the purpose of the law? It reveals God's character, number one. It displays the true nature of sin as the killer disease of all humanity. And number three, it condemns. The purpose of the law was to condemn. Will you look in Romans 3 now with me there, right nearby? Look what Romans chapter 3 says about the law tells me something very interesting here. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 19. We know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. For by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And I want you to look at verse 19 again. 
The law stops every mouth. What does that mean? Sounds a little rough. It almost like shut up. What does it mean there, Romans 3 and 19? In South Carolina, we have a law against killing people, against taking a human life, murder. The purpose of that law is not to make anybody feel good. The purpose of that law is not to exonerate anybody. That law has one purpose, condemnation. And I go before the judge, and I stand before the bar of justice, and the judge says there are charges against you, Mr. Monroe, that you killed somebody. You took a life. And we're going to have a trial to determine that. But if you are, the law condemns you to a long prison sentence or to possibly even a capital punishment. Now, I preach on hell. I believe there is a place called hell. Christ spoke about hell often in his ministry. But I, I want to tell you something. I've had people come up to me, even some some people who, you know, usually old-timers from the past who used to go to a lot of tent revivals and stuff. Boys, thank you preachers. I'll preach more on hell. And they want a lot of hellfire and damnation preaching. Now, I want you to reason with me for a moment. Because spoken from a man who believes in and preaches on the subject of hell, but please hear me. Preaching on hell without the law confuses people. A lot of people have listened to a lot of red-hot sermons, and all it did was confuse them. You say, what do you mean? Okay. If the police broke into my house one night, and man, all of a sudden, there's the SWAT team. Bam! They come roaring into my house, hollering and carrying on like they do. And they break into my house, and one of them grabs me and puts me in handcuffs, shoves me into the police car, and says, boy, you're going to the big house for a long time. I'd be confused. I'd be angry. I would be probably saying to them, what's this about? This is not fair. This is unjust. This is not, what have I done? What are you doing this for? But if the police broke into my house one night and said, Mr. Monroe, put your hands in the cuffs here. You're going away for a long time. And I said, why am I going away for a long time? We've got you on a video robbing a liquor store (laughs) with a gun. (laughs) And a guy was shot. And they got him over here in the emergency room at McLeod. And you're going up for a long time, pal. Do you know what? Now we've connected the seriousness of my offense with the punishment, and it's just. And my mouth would be stopped, stopped. If we just get up in churches and rail about how hot and long hell is, people think, I don't get it because we haven't preached the law. But when we show people the offense, every mouth is stopped. And the last one, the fourth one. What's the purpose of the law? To reveal God's character, 
to display the true nature of sin, to condemn the lawbreaker, and the law appeals to our conscience. Now, listen again. Look right here. When I go to the law with a person, and I use the law lawfully and properly as the Scripture uses it, it circumvents the intellect. It doesn't go through the brain. Or if it does, it does it very quickly. It goes straight to the heart. It appeals to people's consciences. Now, look in verse number 23 there of of Romans again. It says that Paul also expounded the prophets. But let me show you something. He expounded unto them the prophets. When we teach and preach on prophecy, and we should do it a lot because it's 25% of our Bible, when I preach and teach on prophecy, that's an appeal to your mind, to your intellect. Prophecy appeals to the intellect. The purpose of prophecy is I prove to them the integrity of the Bible. And so I go back in my Bible. I can see Paul sitting in his house ministering to these people. And he says to them, look, the Bible is not like your pagan religion because here's what the Bible says. It says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Do you know that was written 700 years before he was even born? It says that he would be crucified. It said that a 1,000 years before they even invented crucifixion as a means of execution. It says that the Jews are going to be carried away. And the clouds were already on the horizon for the Romans coming and carrying the Jews away. Prophecy appeals to our mind because it shows us the integrity of the Scripture and that God is in charge of human history. But the law doesn't appeal to the mind. It goes to the heart. It produces guilt. And we live in a culture, again, where we put down guilt. And we have been told, oh, guilt is bad Guilt will make people have all kinds of psychological problems and and so on. Now, wrong use of guilt, right, I agree with you. But all guilt is not bad. Guilt is an emotion that God gave us. So when we know that we have offended a righteous God and broken his laws, that that guilt drives us to the cross. And without it, nobody's interested in the cross. The only thing that makes people flee to the the cross of Christ is the fact that their consciences have been appealed to. And they say, oh, the only hope I have is in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his shed blood. Think about it. Charles Spurgeon said, the greatest enemy of your soul is the self-righteous spirit which makes man look to himself for salvation, end of quote. And the only thing that tears away and rips away that, that, that self-righteousness is to be aware that I have transgressed the law of a holy God. Now, something very, very important still. The law, I want you to understand this. This is the proper use of the law. The law was never given to save. It was given to show us our need. And I understand why preachers and teachers of the Bible have 
tended to be negative toward the law because so many people think I can be saved by living a good life. I can be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. Wrong, 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 wrong. But you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't throw the law away because somebody misuses it. One, there's nobody in this room that's kept the law of God. If you're depending on that for salvation, we're all lost and we have no hope. And we've demonstrated, the Bible says there's no man other than the Lord Jesus Christ who ever kept the law of God. The Bible says if you offend in one point, you're guilty of all of it in the book of James. The Bible says that the law is simply a mirror like a looking glass, and we look into it, and we see the nature of our need, and then we flee to the cross and to the blood and to God's grace. But I've preached the gospel for years, and I've told people about Calvary, and I've wept in the pulpit and pled with people for their souls and told people about God's mercy and God's grace, and they look at me glazed over. They're not even interested in it. Why? Because looking back in my own ministry, I don't think I put the proper emphasis or enough emphasis on that mirror of God's law. And I look in my shaving mirror, and it says, you need to shave, Bill. Or there's dirt on your face, Bill. Well, I can look in the mirror, the law, all I want and the whiskers don't go away, and the dirt isn't removed. But I lather it up, and I start shaving. I take the washcloth and the soap, and I wash my face, and the dirt goes away. I look in the law, and I see my need, my dirt, my sin. And then I go to the cross. And the mercy and grace of God starts to mean something to me because it's my only hope, my only hope that Christ bore my sins. And the law has no power to save, but the law shows me my need. You're studying the book of Galatians, and this goes right along with it. Chapter 3, verse 24 We had our first lesson in Sunday school this morning on the book of Galatians, a wonderful book. This is the theme of that book. And chapter 3, verse 24 says the law was our schoolmaster, our schoolteacher, our tutor in the Greek. The law was our tutor. It came along and told us our desperate need for Christ, how helpless and hopeless we are. And then the gospel gives me that hope, gives me a solution, and washes away my sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can cleanse me. The law shows me my need to be cleansed. Turn to Galatians 3 and 13, if you will, for just a moment. Galatians 3 and 13. This is the good news. I want you to see it and mark it. I could have quoted it, but mark it in your Bible. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Oh, that's why the law can be negative. It puts a curse on us because 
We can't keep it. We're under its curse because we failed. We've broken it. And then Christ, the gospel is this. Christ redeemed us, took us back from the curse of the law. And if you're saved today, you don't have that curse hanging over your head. The Bible says in Titus 2.14, Christ died and he redeemed us from all iniquity. Redeemed us from all, A-double-L, all, all of our sins. There's the relief for people's guilt. Verse 24 of Acts 28 says this, that after Paul had done that, told what I told you today, from morning till night, it tells how the people responded. How did the Romans respond to the ministry of the apostle Paul? And some believed the things that he spoke, and some believed not. Just like is going to happen right now in this church, and as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning, some believe that we're lost and hopeless and helpless with, under the condemnation of the law and can do nothing to help ourselves. And others are going to try to go on and offer God their own works for salvation. Some believe and some don't. Not everybody that listened to Paul was saved. Not everybody that listens to Bill Monroe is saved. Not everybody that hears the gospel believes the gospel. Not everybody that reads in the law all have sinned and come short of God's glory. Not everybody believes that even. There are many self-righteous people. I'll do something to save myself. And so you either believe it or you don't believe it. And that, of course, is your choice, and that's your choice between you and Almighty God. How many of you could say to me today as we close this service, Pastor, if I were to die today and stand before God, I do have assurance that based purely and simply on the merits of Jesus, no law-keeping involved, I know that I have been cleansed by His mercy and grace and I'd be in heaven with him for eternity. Could you slip your hand up as a testimony of that? Pastor, I know that. I have peace in my heart. I have real peace in my heart to that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, if you couldn't raise your hand, if you're not sure, if you're 75% sure but 25% doubting, then you really don't know, do you? And if you're not sure or you know for sure that you would not be with the Lord, that you've never truly been saved, I would like for you to just pray this prayer in your heart with me today. And this is for the people that don't know that you're saved. Pray with me, Lord, I've sinned against you. I deserve nothing from you, but I cast myself upon your grace, your mercy, and love. I repent of my sins, meaning I turn from my sins, and today I receive Christ 
as my Savior. Lord, come into my life and save me for Jesus' sake. Amen. This week's edition of the Baptist Temple Hour. If you would like a copy of today's program, send your request and payment to the Florence Baptist Temple, P.O. Box 12809, Florence, South Carolina, 29504. Be sure to include today's date and the title of today's message. And please allow two to three weeks for delivery. For more information about the Florence Baptist Temple, visit our website at www.fbt.org. We also want to extend to you an invitation to join us in person. Sunday school starts every week at 9 a.m., and the service begins immediately following at 10.30. Once again, the church family at the Florence Baptist Temple wants to thank you for tuning in this week, and we hope to see you next week for another edition of the Baptist Temple Hour.